bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. 26 years ago this week, legislation to create the CDFI Fund was introduced in the House. The Regal Community Development and Regulatory Improvement Act was introduced November 9th, 1993, and was signed into law the following September, September 23rd, 1994 to be exact. The CDFI Fund, as you likely know, administers a host of programs and incentives, including the New Markets Tax Credit. And by the way, registration is open for Novogratz's next New Markets Tax Credit Conference being held in January. It's going to be January in San Diego, January 30th and 31st. I'll include a registration link in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about a Senate-passed HUD appropriations bill for fiscal year 2020, as well as the status more generally of appropriations legislation. I'll also talk about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's performance of their duty to serve requirement in 2018. After that, I'll talk about the 2019 Low-Income Housing Tax Credit National Pool. Then, I'll outline a draft IRS form that was recently released for qualified opportunity funds. And I'll finish with a roundup of federal and state level news in affordable housing and historic rehabilitation incentives. If you're ready, let's get started. The Senate this past Thursday passed its first appropriations package for fiscal year 2020. That would be the fiscal year that ends on September 30th, 2020. The package includes appropriations for the Department of Transportation and HUD, or T-HUD. The T-HUD measure would provide $51.6 billion in gross appropriations for HUD for fiscal year 2020. The bill is $11.9 billion more than the Trump administration's fiscal year 2020 request, and $1.5 billion more than the enacted levels for the prior fiscal year, fiscal year 2019. Now, the legislation includes $12.6 billion for project-based rental assistance, and that would be enough to renew all contracts for 12 months. Other highlights of the bill? $23.8 billion for tenant-based Section 8 vouchers, $7.5 billion for public housing, and $3.3 billion for the Community Development Block Grant Program. Now, the House did pass its own versions of spending legislation already, but the House bills were written before the budget deal in August that set fiscal year 2020 spending caps, which means the hard work is clearly far from over. The House and Senate bills, now they need to agree on top-line allocations for each of the 12 spending bills. Negotiations on that end have stalled, partly because of disagreements over funding for a border wall. Now, once the top-line numbers are agreed upon, then House and Senate Conference Committee members will need to reconcile differences in legislation that passed both chambers. Lawmakers have the added pressure of the looming funding deadline. The government, the federal government, is currently funded by a continued resolution through November 21st. That's two weeks from this Thursday. Lawmakers will likely need another continued resolution to prevent a government shutdown. And if that's the case, then the question is, what should the extended funding deadline be? Now, Political reported last week that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell spoke over the phone and agreed that the goal was to finish all appropriations bills by December 31st. Now, that may be the goal, but it is quite possible that it will get extended into February or March or later. 
Why? While many Beltway insiders are predicting that the full House will vote on impeachment articles sometime before Christmas, and the Senate would con conduct the impeachment trial starting after the new year, which would then mean that there's not much time potentially to get the funding of the government accomplished by the end of this year. As I said, there's a lot of work to be done here. I'll keep you posted on these negotiations in future podcast episodes and on Twitter as conditions warrant. Now let's talk about opportunity zones. The IRS last week released a draft of Form 8996 for qualified opportunity funds. Form 8996 is used to certify that a corporation or partnership is organized to invest in qualified opportunity zone property. The form is also used annually to report whether the qualified opportunity fund met the investment standard during its tax year. Now one of the proposed changes to the form would require a fund to describe the trader business for investments in qualified opportunity zones property. And that would include both direct investments in qualified opportunity zone business property, as well as indirect investments in such property through qualified opportunity zone businesses. Another proposed change to the form would require the Qualified Opportunity Fund to disclose whether any investors disposed of their investment. And if so, taxpayers would attach a statement listing the investor's name, date of disposal, and the interest transferred. Now the good news about these expanded reported requirements is the actual location of the property in each opportunity zone or census tract number would need to be identified. So it would allow the investment dollars to be traced to the census tracts in which the dollars have been invested. You could almost envision a multiple types of heat maps showing where opportunity zone investment dollars are going based upon geography, maybe relative population. There's a number of heat maps that you could create. That said, the Novogratic-led Opportunity Zones Working Group does plan to submit a comment letter to the IRS on the proposed form. As such, we'd request that you send any feedback or suggestions you may have on the proposed form to my partner, John Charetti, who leads the Opportunity Zones Working Group. He can also send you information on how to join the Opportunity Zones Working Group if you're interested. Joining the Opportunity Zones Working Group is a way to stay in the loop on technical and administrative Opportunity Zones issues. We encourage you to join. I will include in John's email in today's show notes. Going back to Form 8996, these draft changes do point to a larger effort to increase transparency and accountability for Opportunity Zones investments. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, there's bipartisan support to strengthen reporting requirements for the Opportunity Zones incentive. The original Opportunity Zones legislation that was introduced by Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey did include data reporting requirements for qualified opportunity funds. But those reporting requirements were stripped from the final bill that was enacted due to Senate procedural rules. Since then, Senator Scott and Booker have been vocal in their support for instituting reporting requirements. In fact, Senators Scott and Booker, along with Republican Todd Young of Indiana and Democrat Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, did introduce Opportunity Zones reporting legislation this past May. The bill, SB 1344, would require Treasury to collect and report on several data points on investments by qualified opportunity funds. On a national and state level, Treasury would collect information on the number of qualified opportunity funds and the amount of assets they hold, the composition of qualified opportunity fund investments by asset class as well, and more. And then on the investment level, information collected would include amounts and types of investments and the type of activities supported by investment, as well as other information. An identical bill, H.R. 2593, was introduced in the House 
by Democratic Representative Ron Kine of Wisconsin and Republican Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania. Those of you who attended our Novogratz Opportunity Zones Fall Conference in Chicago just a couple of weeks ago probably heard that efforts to enact Opportunity Zones reporting requirements have mo movement and momentum in Congress. This is according to one of our speakers, Shay Hawkins. Shay is CEO of the Opportunity Funds Association and was a former senior policy advisor to Senator Scott. Supporters of the reporting legislation hope that provisions, the reporting provisions, may catch a ride on a year-end legislative vehicle like an appropriations bill. Now let's turn to news from the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they report, met all of their affordable housing goals and their obligations under their duty to serve requirements for the year 2018. As they have in the past three years, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac exceeded their multifamily goals. The benchmark goal for low-income units was 315,000. Well, Fannie Mae financed more than 420,000, 100,000 over the goal, and Freddie Mac more than 474,000. Now the benchmark goal for very low income units was 60,000, 60,000 units. Once again, Fannie Mae exceeded their goal. They financed more than 80,000 and Freddie more than 105,000 units. And the benchmark goal for small multifamily properties, that would be properties of five to 50 units, was 10,000 units. Fannie Mae financed nearly 12,000 and Freddie nearly 40,000 units. Now the duty to serve rule requires Fannie and Freddie to serve very low, low, and moderate income families in three underserved markets or underserved areas. Manufacturing, affordable housing preservation, as well as rural housing. One of the ways that Fannie and Freddie meet their duty to serve obligations is through investments in low income housing tax credit properties. Many of these low income housing tax credit investments that are made by Fannie and Freddie in 2018 did benefit the rural housing market. Fannie Mae, they committed $118 million in low-income housing tax credit equity to rural areas in 2018. That $118 million helped support 42 properties, 13 of which were in high-needs rural areas. Fannie Mae also made four low-income housing tax credit investments to support housing on tribal land. Now, Freddie Mac, they committed $73 million in low-income housing tax credit investments to rural areas. Freddie's investments supported 17 properties, five of which were in high-needs rural regions. Now, to clarify, Fannie and Freddie are authorized, each of them are authorized, to invest a total of $5 million per year in low-income housing tax credit equity, a portion of which would go to developments meeting duty to serve obligations. Now, investment in low-income housing in high-needs rural areas is definitely a good thing. What remains to be seen is if and how these investments change under housing finance reform. You may recall the Trump administration in September released plans to overhaul the housing finance system. The Treasury version of the plan recommends ending the Federal Housing Finance Agency's conservatorship of Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie have been in conservatorship for more than 11 years now. The Treasury plan also recommends replacing Fannie and Freddie's statutory affordable housing goals. Essentially, the plan proposes to replace the duty to serve requirements with what the report calls a more efficient, transparent, and accountable system. Now again, these are just proposals at this stage. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said at a Senate Banking Committee hearing in September 
that Treasury would like to work with Congress on bipartisan housing reform plans. But Treasury, HUD, and the Federal Housing Finance Agency would also work on administrative regulatory reform. In other housing news, the IRS recently announced that there would be $2.7 million in long-term tax credits available in the national pool for calendar year 2019. Now, the national pool credits of $2.7 million is the amount of unused allocation authority that gets redistributed to other states each year. Now, states that allocated their entire state housing credit ceiling for the preceding calendar year are eligible to request credits from the national pool. The national pool, by the way, grew by about $20,000 compared to 2018. Reallocations of long-term tax credits, basically those states benefiting from the national pool, range from a low of $6,400 for Vermont to a high of $408,000 for California. I will note, though, that if a given state has unused allocation authority that does go to the national pool, that doesn't mean that there's a lack of demand for that state for the long closing tax credit. Our listeners who work in affordable housing know that the long closing tax credit is in, remote, in robust demand. The unused allocation each year by the various states is simply due to small amounts of long-term tax credits that are returned by developments or otherwise cannot be placed efficiently with new applications before the end of the calendar year. In fact, the amount of unused allocations is only 0.3% of the annual population-based long-term housing tax credit. You can read more about the national pool as well as find a link to how much each state received in reallocated credits in my notes from Novogratz blog post. I will include a link in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Now turning to some other news, last week House legislators introduced the Housing for Homeless Students Act of 2019. This bill is a companion bill to S-767, which was introduced in March by Ohio Senators Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown. The bills would adjust the student rule for long housing tax credit tenants. Now the student rule prohibits low-income housing tax credit tenants from being full-time students. I should say that this student rule prohibits all tenants or households in a low-income housing tax credit property from being full-time students. There are some exceptions. This bill would modify and it would add to those exceptions making full-time students who are documented as a homeless child or youth in the last seven years or those who were defined as a homeless veteran during their previous five years as eligible. In state-level news, the staff for the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee is going to recommend that during the committee's December 11th meeting that they adopt competition criteria for the February 2020 allocation round for tax and bonds. Under the recommendation, the threshold cutoff for the 2020 multifamily scorecard would be 80 points. Now this would go into effect January 1, 2020, which means that projects scoring less than 80 points would not be submitted to the California Debt Limit Advisory Commission for approval of taxes and bonds. Now, one of the reasons for this is there is an expectation that competition for multifamily tax and bonds could be very competitive in 2020. In part, it's because California will have an additional $500 million in state long term tax credits in 2020 that can be paired with private activity bonds, making more projects financially feasible. The deadline, by the way, for applying is November 15th. Now, applications received by November 15th that aren't actually seeking state local housing tax credits would be considered in a later round. 
please contact a Novogratz partner near you for any assistance you need with your applications. The November 15th deadline is just around the corner, so please call today. In other state-level news, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper signed a bill on Friday that would extend the sunset date of the state historic tax credit. It would extend it from an immediate deadline of January 1, 2020 to January 1, 2024, a four-year extension. The bill, HB 399, also expands the state mill rehabilitation tax credit to include a 48% credit for rehabilitating a qualified historic railroad station. Now, to be eligible for the historic railroad credit, a property must meet several conditions, including being located within a designated opportunity zone. If you'd like to learn more about historic tax credits in your state, please contact my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Well, that brings it to the end of this week's report. I hope to see many of you this week at the Novogratz Financing Renewable Energy Tax Credits Conference in Washington, D.C. It's this Thursday and Friday, the 7th and the 8th. We have Senator John Thune of South Dakota providing a fireside chat, if you will, during the conference. That'll be Thursday at 4 p.m. to be exact. We also have many great panel discussions on the state of the industry, tax issues, structure trends, and more. I'll include a registration link in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Also, this Wednesday morning, I'll be speaking in Ohio at the Ohio Housing Conference. I'll be speaking on the housing policy plenary session from Ohio to the Hill. I hope to see many of you there as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Nevergradic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.